The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You guys can have a seat. I would encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. It's going to be our Advent text for the season. I always appreciate the Advent season because it allows us to take the same pit stops that we do every single year. I know for some people that might not like some redundancy, going through the same motions, singing the same songs, maybe looking at similar passages can be um, hard. It can be difficult. But I actually think it's a blessing. I think it's a blessing that in our church calendar, we have this redundancy, if you will, built in because we're fickle people. We uh, forget the goodness of God. And as one writer described the Advent season, it's like we're hitting the same speed bump that causes the same flat tire to allow us to stop at the same position in the road to look at the same view every single year. And so that's the beauty of these candles, whether they were light or not. I wonder how long that will actually keep burning this morning. Is that allows us to make the same pit stops and to think about the same elements of God in the story of redemption um, and in the story of anticipation. And so I'm excited for this, this year again that we get to do that. Now, here's how we're going to do that over the next four Sundays and then uh, even heading up to our Christmas Eve service. We are going to be in the book of Matthew and looking at the first two chapters of the book of Matthew. This is how he describes the Advent season, how he describes the birth of Christ. And I I want you to look at the very first line of the book of Matthew. We're going to look at more of that today, but I want to start by looking at the very first verse. It says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, when I was in school and I took some creative writing courses, one of the things that the teacher always said that harped on, make sure you have a good hook. Make sure that first line sticks them. Make sure that first line brings them back and wants them to read the second line. Make sure that they uh, want to keep going and want to keep reading. And I was thinking about some of the the famous one-liners that we have or the first-liners that we have in classic books. I think of like uh, um, George Orwell in 1984. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. Or you could go to A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. You guys know this one. And it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, and it was the age of foolishness. You could go to, uh, to Kill a Mockingbird. When he was nearly 13, my brother Jem took his, or got his arm badly broken at the elbow. Or you go to Pride and Prejudice. I threw this one in for you ladies. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. These grab your attention. You want to keep reading. You know, again, these are the first lines of a book. I don't really think Matthew does it for me. Just got to be honest. When it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, I'm like, a genealogy? 
I'm not in for a bunch of names. But if you actually consider what the first line of the book is describing, and if you hear it from maybe the ears of the Jewish audience, it might actually be more of a hook than we might uh, first understand. You see, if you were a Jew, these words would have grabbed your, your, your attention both with your eyes and your ears because it echoed a very well-known and frankly exciting line from another cherished book, and that was the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the uh, Greek Old Testament, so if you were to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, as they did, this was the Greek Old Testament. And the words here, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, this word genealogy, it could also be uh, translated as story, it can also be translated as Genesis. Matthew is writing and saying, this is the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. Now, if we hear Genesis, what do we think of? We think of beginning, we think of creation, we think of starting point, we think of being made. What Matthew is describing here in the very first verse of Matthew 1 is that he is saying he is writing about a new Genesis. He's writing about a new starting point, and he's saying that the starting point is clearly Jesus. Matthew's word choice and the way that he starts this book is of no accident. The book of Matthew is the story of the new genesis, of the new beginnings that we all have. Here's how one commentator describes this. This is Ferguson. He says, Matthew's gospel, and indeed the Christian gospel message as a whole, is about God establishing his kingdom and beginning what Paul called in 2 Corinthians 5, a new creation. So what Matthew gets to describe after a long portion of silence, when we open up the New Testament, the very first words and verse that we get to, he to hear is essentially this. A new genesis has occurred. The Advent season, the season of anticipation, is all about a new genesis. It's all about a new starting point. It's all about being made new. And it's about being made new in Christ so everything that we get to look at for the next four weeks, this, this speed bump that we get to cross over every single year is to remind ourselves that we are made new, not because of what we have done, but because of Christ. Now, before we go on in the first several verses of Matthew, I want to give some background. It's been roughly 400 years since the last prophet of the Old Testament spoke. 400 years of silence. And it hasn't exactly been a easy 400 years for the nation of Israel. I mean, they haven't had an easy time for a while now. They've had a rough life as a nation. They've gone through kind of constant bondage and slavery. I mean, it started with the Assyrians, and then it was the, Babylon, the Babylonians, and then it was the Persians, and then it was the Greeks. Now, it's the Romans. And they're in Jerusalem, and they have a temple, and they're free, but they are a Roman province. They are, uh, they are governed and ruled by somebody else. They have a governor, but he's kind of a figurehead that, that has to um, pay homage to Caesar. I mean, Israel is not free at the moment, and they're in this state of desperateness, wondering, how long is this going to remain? This is not how it was supposed to be. This is not the promise that God gave us. He said that we would be free. He said that we would have our city back. He said that we would rule again like the glory days of David. And I'm sure that Israel in this 400 years of silence is starting to doubt God's presence. Where are you? 
because Rome is just kicking our tail and we don't like it. I'm sure they're doubting God's plan. Lord, we read the prophets and we can read the books of the law and it doesn't seem like this is how it's supposed to go. And they're wondering if God has, if they had failed God one too many times and if he's left them. I think they're probably echoing Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? I mean, there is a desperateness in their life because they just keep going through the same thing over and over for 400 years and nothing has changed. And then Matthew writes, this is the new beginning of Jesus Christ. This is the, the Lord has come. What Israel and us get to see is that God was keeping his promises all of the time from the very beginning. And so if I can quote again from Sinclair Ferguson, he says this, Matthew's message is this, from the very beginning, God knew exactly where he was going. Throughout the centuries, he was directing history towards this moment. Despite his people's failures and trials, despite various cataclysmic events, like the exile in Babylon, the longest standing and most difficult to keep promise of God has come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And how does Matthew describe that to his readers? He offers them a genealogy. Now, the genealogy has a bunch of names. I'm about to read the genealogy of Christ. I could have asked Sheldon to read the genealogy of Christ, but that's, I would, that would not be kind to him. So here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to read 17 verses. There's a lot of names in here. And if any of you think that you can pronounce, pronounce the names better, I can get you a mic. I'm going to read this. Some of these people we don't know anything about. And the reason we don't know anything about them is because literally they lived during the intertestamental period of the Bible, so we know nothing about them. Others we know much about. But what we're going to see is that even through a genealogy, we get to see God's grace and glory and redemption and reconciliation shine forth. So, Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. The book of the genealogy... Oh, I also reserve the right... There's like two names in here that I just cannot... There, a Jim Bob might come out if I can't figure it out in, in the moment, but hey. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zeroth by Tamar. And Perez, and Perez was the father of Hezron and Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amimadad and Amimadad, the father of Nashon and Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed, the father of Jesse and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was the father of uh, Abijab. And nope, uh, Jim Bob, I can't figure, that's the word, I, whatever. The father of Asaph. Asaph was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jerome. Jerome was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Amos. Amos was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of uh, Jeconiah and his brother at the time of the deportation of Babylon. Now here are the people we know nothing about. 
And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of uh, Shealti, and Shealti was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abudai, and Abudai the father of Alakim, and Alakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of uh, Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of uh, Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Manathan, and Manathan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, to whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So the generation from Adam, no, from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon were 14 generations, and from the, from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Got through the most difficult part of the sermon. Okay. Why these names? This is not an exhaustive list of Jesus' genealogy. We know there are more people in Jesus' line. Why these names? I could also ask the question, why did Matthew list 14, 14, and 14? There's a whole um, understand. there's this whole kind of logic behind the number 14 and how the Jews thought that was a special number. I'm not going to go there today. If you want to do that research, you can Google that on your own. But we do have to ask the question, why these particular 42 unique generations and why these particular 42 unique names? You see, Luke, when he records his genealogy of Jesus, he has different names. You can read that in Luke 3. Well, we don't exactly understand why these 42 unique names are here outside of this that Matthew wanted to recall these particular stories in the nation of Israel. You see, there's no right way or wrong way to record Jesus' history. There's no there, the way of saying, well, you have to say this guy and that guy. But what Matthew wanted us to see from the very beginning is that Jesus is and always has been the new beginnings, this new Genesis. And here's why. These stories that are listed out here from beginning to end. If you took a deep dive into every single one of them, which we're not going to do this morning, they would all have one thing in common, one similarity, one strand that held them all together. They were broken and in desperate need of a savior. We read some heroes. I'm gonna put them, them in quotes, some, some heroes in this list. Abraham and Jacob and Judah and David. But let's consider what the heroes of this list are known for well there's abraham he was an idolater he was a liar he was a manipulator he doubted god on more occasions than we probably have ever doubted god and in bigger ways there's jacob known as a deceiver a liar a manipulator a cheater a dysfunctional father at his best there's judah again an adulterer a liar a manipulator full of hate there's David, an adulterer, a murderer, a manipulator, a liar, again, a dysfunctional father. All of these guys, it's, they're scandalous stories that are just, um, that, that in, in, in one sense would taint the name of Christ. It's like we all, I'm assuming, well, not, we all love people in our family. It's Thanksgiving. Maybe they were in your home this, this past week that they're just kind of the black sheep of the family or they just don't exactly fit in or they, they have that thing in their life of like, man, if I could just annex that person out of my life, maybe out of my story, out of my own personal gene genealogy, our family name would be better. 
Matthew. Matthew, instead of annexing those people out of Jesus' genealogy, highlights those people. He highlights the heroes, but actually what I want to look at today is he's added several people, surprising people, people that he could have easily overlooked to this story. He's added them to this story to highlight the scandal that they are, but I think it's to highlight the grace that God has. All these people have one thing in common. They're all women. The first reason that it's a scandal to have women in a a genealogy is because you don't normally include women in a genealogy. A genealogy follows the male bloodline. It's the dad begat the son, the son begat the grandson, the grandson begat the grandson's grandson. It followed the male line. And here, Matthew breaks all of that in, in five moments and adds in a woman. And even then, as they're reading it, they would have understood this. That's not the normal way of doing it. So it would have made their minds go to these people. Why did they include that in there? Matthew does this five times, and I think he does it to highlight this. That God has always been taking people that should not be a part of his family and making them a part of his family. Or to say it a new way, God has always been about making all things new. See these women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. The first four, and fifth is Mary. We're going to look at her next week. These four women, at least, have a couple things in common. They're probably all Gentiles. The only one that is a question mark around that is Bathsheba. We don't know uh, what her um, genealogy is, but they're all Gentiles. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth were outside the nation of Israel and brought into the nation of Israel. They all have scandalous pasts. I mean, I'm going to, just in Tamar, we're going to look at Genesis 38. I'm unwilling to read the entire chapter here because there's kids. So now you can go read it on your own. It's in the Bible. Sorry, parents, if there's questions afterwards. It's it's scandalous. I mean, if there's something that you'd want to gloss over, if there's something that you'd want to try to hide, let's not include her, but they do. But here is what we also see with all of these. Without the Savior stepping in and offering grace, they would not be in the line of Christ, and they would be hopeless. And so in all of these, we see Christ making all things new. So I want to walk through those four women this morning just to highlight these scandalous stories of God's grace. We're going to start with Tamar. Again, this is Genesis 38. Just allow me to tell you this story again if you haven't heard it in a while. This is Judah's daughter-in-law. Judah sent out to go find a wife for his eldest son, Ur. And they brought back, and and Tamar and Ur married, and it said that Ur was a very wicked man, and Ur died before Tamar could have a son. Now, again, the genealogy, the family line, the lineage of an individual followed the eldest son's Birth, so it would go from eldest son to eldest son to eldest son to eldest son. So the problem that it's a problem that Ur didn't have a child with Tamar before he died. Well, there was a um, a safety net built into the customs of the time. If the eldest son died before his wife and them could conceive a son, the younger son, the next son in line, would have to, if he wasn't married, would have to take for his. White, he would have to take the wife of the older son, he had to take a sister-in-law as his wife, and they would have to have a child, but the child wouldn't be his, the child would be his brother's. Well, that happened. Tamar took 
Ur's younger son. So the sister-in-law married the brother-in-law. Well, he died as well. And Judah's looking around going, I don't, have an, I don't have an heir here. This family line has to continue. I don't know what to do here. So Judah had this plan. He goes, well, I've got, I've got a younger son, but he's a little too young to marry at the moment. You're going to have to wait for him to grow up. So Tamar, if you go back to your home and you live as a widow, as soon as my youngest son gets of age to grow up, I will send him to you and you will marry and you can continue on the line of Ur. You will continue on my family line. Well, Tamar did that. She sat back, she waited for the son to get old. Years passed, she lived as a widow, and Judah never sent for her. And the son acted like he didn't have to fulfill any promise for the family. And Tamar was like, hang on, wait a second. I'm the widow over here that's just waiting to get married. Why have you forgotten me? Well, Tamar got angry, and Judah's wife had died. And Judah, after the time of comfort, after the time of sorrow, journeyed to another city with his uh, shepherds. And he got into some promiscuous trouble, entered a town, and thought he found a temple prostitute to be with. But it was actually Tamar. Because Tamar heard that Judah, who was supposed to keep this promise, but hadn't kept this promise, and Tamar's like, the... The one thing I had in life I can't have now. Tamar went to this town, dressed as a temple prostitute, and lured Judah to herself. And they slept together. And out of this, they were born twins, Perez and Zerah, that are in this list. Now, if you can think about this story, this is where uh, Tamar, because Judah had to have a payment for this and didn't have a goat at the time and i guess that's how you paid for that thing back then was a goat and, and so tamar's like give me something of uh, of in your life that i know that you that you'll want to come back for give me your signet ring give me your cloak give me your staff so they all handed that over and then judah went went back to go find a a goat but then when they they returned and he's like where's the temple prostitute she was just here but she left and she walks into his camp a couple months later and goes here's your stuff and you're going to continue on your line through me with the twins that are born inside of me. I had to edit that for a Sunday morning sermon. You can go read the full details in Genesis 38. You'd think Matthew would want to just skip over that one. I mean, again, this genealogy is not a complete genealogy. He had the freedom to pick and choose people and he picked her. We'll get to why in a minute. Rahab. We're going to stick with the prostitution theme. Unfortunately, because we go from somebody who poses as a prostitute to somebody who is actually a prostitute. This you could look at in Joshua 2. We're not going to read it for the sake of time. Again, the story. The nation of Israel was on the other side of the Jordan, and they were looking into Cana, and they were scared to death. Because what they saw were these fortified cities that they had no ability in their own minds to conquer. And so spies were sent into Cana to determine how bad is it going to be. And these spies went to the largest city around, Jericho. And they were brought in by the most unlikely of people, Rahab, a prostitute. And she hid them. She vouched for them. 
She made sure that they could safely be in the city and know about the city and also safely escape the city. But before these um, spies left, I can envision her grabbing hold of, of, their short ter- of their coats and saying, listen, I've heard about your God. I've heard about what you did in Egypt. I've heard about what you did in the wilderness. I've heard about the faithfulness of your God, the power of your God, what he can do. We don't stand a chance. Like the person in the story who had the greatest amount of faith at this point was the prostitute who didn't walk with Israel. But that's kind of an aside. Remember me. I want to be a part of your tribe. I want to be a part of your nation. I want to worship your God. Make sure that you keep me safe. I am her. She had all this faith of, I know you are going to come back here and tear these walls down. I wonder if when Israel started walking around it for the seven times, if she's like, what in the world? That's a whole nother side. But what we see is that her faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, her faith in the God of Israel who protected this nation for 40 years was a sure thing. And you would think, you're a prostitute. You can't be a part of our nation. I mean, she's asking, she's going, she's, she's the throwaways of her own nation. And here she's saying, I want to be a part of your people. I want your God to be my God. She trusted in the Lord's might and pleaded for a safety. And what was she offered? Well, she was granted safety and access into the people of Israel. That's amazing in and of itself. She was granted access into the lineage of Christ. At this point, we have to stop and say there are two prostitutes in Jesus' lineage. There are two people that are broken. There are two people who are desperate. There are two people that any good person will just maybe shove them aside. And yet Matthew and Christ boldly says, no, I will reconcile that. I'll make all things new. I'll stand by them. Third woman, Ruth. You could see her story in Ruth 1. The most surprising thing about Ruth is this. She's a Moabite woman. She married her husband when they left Israel and went to Moab. And you might not understand why that's so surprising or maybe what the problem is. So allow me to remind you of Deuteronomy 32, 3 through 4. It says this. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Why? Because you did, you did not... They did not meet with you with bread and with water on the way when you were coming out of Egypt. Moabites were known for worshiping other gods. I mean, that's the, that's the first commandment right there gone. Moabites were known for following different rules. Moabites were clearly not the people of God. And yet we see her name, a Moabite, somebody that this command Clearly, it's here from the 10th generation. None may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. We see her name in the lineage of Christ. It's because Ruth, she's known for something else besides being a Moabite. She's known for her faith in God. Because Ruth 1.16 says this, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you will go, I will go. Where you will lodge, 
I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth made Naomi's people her people. But more importantly, Jesus made all people his people. And that includes Ruth. That includes this Moabite woman that stands outright in this genealogy. So we're not even a third of the way through this, and already we have three scandalous women that you would assume Christ would not want to be associated with, but it continues. And it continues with Bathsheba, number four. We actually don't see her name listed here, because again, Matthew wants the very first thing that you think about when you consider her. He wants you to remember the drama that's around her life. Because how is she described? The wife of Uriah. What's the first thing that that comes to mind? Murder, adultery, death. How How would you like to have the most famous adultery scene ever that's Bathsheba and David if there's one thing I mean I'm sure in the moment she was like no one's gonna know everyone's gonna know her name is tarnished forever by the actions on a rooftop but what do we see from her being in this line that Jesus redeemed their shame and made them all new just consider how these stories have been changed by God's grace You have Jacob. I want to start with him. You have Jacob, who is known as the deceiver, becomes Israel, known as the one who prevails over God. You have Tamar, who is forced into prostitution. She's redeemed and restored into the family of God and became the mother that that she so desperately wanted to be, the mother of the future king of Israel. Imagine, in the moment, she's like, I just want to have a child. Can you imagine when she realized that that child that she, that she so desperately wanted would lead to Christ? Her shame, the shame that she had then would be the shame that Jesus took on on the cross. The acceptance that she, that she so desperately wanted would be the acceptance that her future grandson would offer her because of the cross. There's Rahab prostitute that becomes the mother of the ultimate high priest. The most shameful one gets to look at Christ and say, somehow the Lord used that. And the Lord is not only interceding for her, but also became the sacrifice that she needed. And when I think about Rahab especially, it's she understood, it seems that she understood she needed somebody outside of her. She knew, I'm a prostitute. That's my, that's my description. That's my name. That's my shame. That's, that's what people know me as. I mean, there's no question about that. And yet what we see is that through her faith, she's able to be offered something that's not, the shame is, can be reconciled to glory. The shame can be changed into righteousness. Ruth, a homeless and socially rejected woman, is redeemed and given a home and a household. That will never end. Bathsheba, a woman known for her promiscuous actions with a king, gets to continue the lineage of the promised king. 
all these people show, both these four women and the rest of them, is that God has always been making broken people move. You would think the king of the world, of the universe, royal king Jesus, would want to have the best possible family history that anyone could offer. You would think if God knew, because he did, that I'm sending my son to this earth to be born of a woman, that I'm going to protect that woman, not only when she is born, but also all of her ancestors. You would think that Jesus would have picked a better person. I, I don't, obviously, I don't know my family history 42 generations back. I'm not so sure mine, I think mine might even be a little better. Because I didn't even talk about all the bad kings in here that take place in the second section of it. And I, who knows what's happening with the third generation with the, from Babylon to Christ. Who knows them? We don't have any stories there because it's during the intertestamental period. But I would think you would pick a different set of ancestors to follow. And yet I think it demonstrates that even from the beginning, Jesus has been making all things new. Jesus has been restoring, has been redeeming the sin and the shame of his people. That he's always been transforming the liars and the manipulators and the thieves and the prostitutes and the idolaters into sons and daughters of God. I think that's what the Christmas season is all about. It's all about redemption. It's all about restoration. It's all about transformation. It's all about Jesus who takes our shame and in return declares us righteous. I went to these four scandalous stories this morning because I think it's so easy for us to look at people and think, you are too far gone. You are past the point of God's grace. There's no hope for you. You know who we, we would put in that category today? The Tamars, the Ruths, the Bathshebas, the Rahabs. And yet God demonstrates. He, he not only redeems them he uses them and so if you're feeling this way this morning maybe you're like oh man i i feel as rejected as i'm sure rahab did he redeems you and he uses you that's what we get to look at during the advent season that's why i'm excited to once again hit that speed bump hit the speed bump and look at the joy that we have in anticipating christ's birth i'm gonna uh just point our attention towards communion this morning. And this is a meal that we get to take together each week to remind ourselves that the Lord is making all things new. He starts with our bodies. That's what Paul is talking about in, first, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He's making new creations. What is this new creation? He's taking the sinner that we are, the dead person, the person that is um, completely worthless in front of God because of our sin, and he is, because of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection, declaring us alive. What's this new creation? It's this new creation that somebody is in, is in the state of sin and this body of death. I'm a sinner, I still sin, and yet I am alive to God. My eyes have been opened. It's this simultaneously saint and sinner. That's what this new creation is. 
somebody that struggles with sin, but at the same time has been reconciled to God and could enter into his presence with thanksgiving and joy and confidence in the table that we get to take each week reminds us of that. Because we can be so easily sucked back into the shame that we all carried because of our sin. And yet this table reminds us that the only life that, we, that, is, that is truly satisfactory is Christ. The only sacrifice that's actually going to make any difference is his. And he has finished that. He has done that. He has given us what we need. And we get to take it and celebrate that everything that we need has been given to us in him. If you're here this morning and you haven't placed your faith in Christ, maybe you're not where Rahab was of going, I've seen the works of the Lord and I want to believe. Maybe it's suspect. I, I would ask that you would just let this, these elements pass you by because we don't want want them to confuse you. We don't take these elements to, to save ourselves, to fill up anything inside them. We take them to celebrate Christ is done. But I would also ask that you come see me after the service because I would love to tell you more about Christ. I'd love to tell you how you can place your faith in him, how you can stand in the exact same position of Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and Tamar and myself saying, I am a sinner redeemed by God's grace. I no longer stand in shame, but in hope and glory and joy and peace because of Christ. Let's pray. We can take Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.